0: ask me why i'm always teasing you you hate to have me call you pretty baby whether you like it or not there's going to be a big change around here and it starts tonight hello everyone and welcome to the queens and rebels women's history podcast i'm your host marta I suppose I never introduced myself in the beginning of these things but oh well. <laughs> How's everyone doing? I am definitely excited for the warmer weather. I know I keep talking about it but really what else is there to be excited for other than the fact that I'm not gonna be confined <laughs> within the four walls and I can go walk around. I actually bought A cat stroller. It has been my dream for a while, and I know my husband ridiculed me for it a little bit, (laughs) half jokingly, I should say, but I'm so excited to to take my cat child out for a stroll around the neighborhood with me. I have no shame, so I will not be embarrassed. I know some people don't want to be labeled the crazy cat lady, but for me it's an honor. And in other news, I got this delicious ice cream creation. Like, it's not a Kit Kat bar, but they tried to mimic it. So it has this puffed rice wafer in the middle. And outside of it, there is a layer of ice cream and then a thin layer of chocolate covers it. And it's so good. I have a feeling this is my new addiction. It's kind of dangerous, actually. I've already went through like um, three of those, I want to say. I mean, there's only six in the box. So I got to keep the other three for my poor husband. (laughs) Because I'm sure he also uh, wants those as well. And of course, it's the long weekend. And I like having the extra day off. It was a very tough week for me actually during work because one of my co-workers was on vacation so I had to cover for her as well and although I do work from home I'm lucky that way and I saved on some commuting time it was pretty tough it was like 11, 12, 13 hour days since uh, the past Thursday for, for five days in a row and I really just like didn't have time to do anything but work and sleep and, you know, ate pretty much crappy like takeout food and it's not the best week. I uh, was really busy. I'm definitely happy to have an extra day of rest. And uh, I am happy that I'm able to get this episode out, of course. Today we will be talking about a feminist icon. The OG of uh, feminism, Huda Sharavi. She was uh, recently commemorated in a Google Doodle. So you know you made it if uh, Google gives you one. (laughs) Uh, So I guess uh, I don't want to chit-chat for too much. Let's just uh, jump right in. Huda was born on June 23rd, 1870. in a town of Minya, Egypt, to an upper-class family. Her father, Sultan Pasha, was tremendously wealthy and worked his way up to a high-ranking government uh, official position. They uh, were of a noble uh, class. And uh, her mother was from the uh, Caucasus region, And women from that region at the time were a status symbol and would be sold to the elite households until slavery was outlawed in Egypt in 1877. Around this time, Egypt was uh, undergoing major changes. Prior to Huda's birth, Egypt went from being a province of the Ottoman Empire to a semi-autonomous country. It was a vassal state uh, that was uh, trying to modernize. Um, Huda was one of the last uh, generation uh, to be raised in a traditional uh, segregated harem system. And she did talk a lot about that experience of her childhood in her book called Harem Years, the Memoirs of an Egyptian feminist sorry to burst someone's bubble out there but when I say harem it's not the hypersexualized exoticized um, space horny Western men made up in their minds. it was uh, very much just a segregated living space for women. these uh, systems of female seclusion in, uh, into the domestic space, it was a, a status symbol uh, for the rich and the noble that a uh, middle class also tried to emulate. The poor really couldn't afford to live in that kind of segregation. So as peasants would have to cluster together in small uh, quarters, uh, you know. Um, another social custom that uh, Huda talked quite a bit about was wailing. At the time women of all classes, uh, would uh, cover themselves in public. And I'm not uh, talking just the head veil, but uh, fully the face um, as well. And it was not uh, so much a religious uh, custom um, as much as it was a social one, uh, because uh, women from all uh, religious backgrounds in Egypt actually availed themselves, including Christian and Jewish women. When hudas family, for example, went on a vacation in Europe, and they did do so. They were quite wealthy. And other Egyptian aristocracy did as well. Women wouldn't cover their faces and genders mingled more freely. And it was a sign that this was a social convention, I think. And um, it was something practiced in other parts of the world as well, Um, I mean, there is a reason why uh, your stereotypical babushka has a headscarf, Uh, but I do recognize the Western imagination connected, uh, head covering uh, to Islam. And uh, some Western feminists uh, that, uh, you know, don't know squat about Islam like to chime in and say it's a symbol of oppression. And not just feminists, actually, quite a lot of people do that. And, of course, for some women, it could very much be a symbol of oppression. I don't imagine in Iran women have a lot of say over the matter. Uh, But, again, uh, for a lot of women, it's a choice. It's a symbol of their identity. So, you know, let Islamic feminists speak for themselves and tell you what they think. So, that's what I have to say on the matter, I guess. Anyway, I'm starting to get off topic, and I'm only like two sentences in. Uh, so uh, let's get back to uh, to Huda's life. In 1884, her father passed away, and the household was in legal guardianship under her father's nephew, that uh, would check on them occasionally. So this was the father's sister's son. Prior to Huda's father's death, the household was moved from Minya to Cairo. Huda was raised in a very fashionable neighborhood close to the Nile and in the core of the medieval city. She did receive an education and by all accounts, she was linguistically gifted. She spoke multiple languages, among them Arabic, Turkish, Farsi and French, and uh, she wrote poetry as well. The first uh, state school for girls actually predated Huda's birth, and it opened in 1873, but it was customary for aristocratic wealthy daughters to get a private education from a tutor, Uh, However, um, the education received by these girls would be uh, gender-specific. No surprise there, 19th-century women really could not go on to study law or math um, anywhere. Among other subjects uh, that were deemed appropriate uh, for a young lady, uh, Huda learned uh, piano, history, literature, and painting. Uh, She was eager to learn but was frustrated by the limitations placed on her studies due to her gender. For example, she was not allowed to take Arabic grammar lessons alongside her brother, as it was deemed to be an inappropriate subject for a woman. She later wrote the following about this experience, I quote, I became depressed and began to neglect my studies. Hating being a girl because it kept me from the education I sought. Later, being a female became a barrier between me and the freedom for which I yearned, unquote. Besides the growing resentment of the limitations placed on her studies and having to grow up in the last remnants of an archaic her system, Huda had a pretty nice privileged life. Um, especially comparing uh, to an average Egyptian woman uh, of the time. Her childhood came to an abrupt end when, at the age of 13, Huda was married off to her older cousin, Alish Sharavi, uh, who also happened to be the family's legal guardian, and he also happened to be a 40-year-old dude. We all <laughs> know how I feel about uh, that. Not great, I just want to clarify. (laughs) Uh, Huda herself uh, talks about uh, this marriage as uh, being forced on her. She was excluded from any decision-making, and furthermore, she was uh, one of the last people to even know that it's taking place. Uh, She did not object to the marriage, uh, not uh, publicly, um, according to her memoirs, memoirs, Uh, But she did recall uh, fears of the isolation that came with the marriage. In a very unusual move, after a year of the married life, Huda separated from her husband for almost seven years. She did so with the help of her brother Umar. This was a critically formative period of uh, her life and her feminist outlook especially. In the 19th century, the discussion about women's rights was starting to seep into upper-class discourse in Egypt. It was not yet part of a mainstream debate. Uh, It largely centered around the question of education. Some intellectuals started to argue that educating women would further national progress, Of course, not because roughly half of the country's population is a tremendous intellectual resource uh, that would further science and art, like, um, no, 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 (laughs) nope, nope, nope. But um, it would benefit the nation in terms of women being smarter as wives and mothers. It is a well-known fact that uh, fragile feminine brains can explode from math or too much reading. And um, that's why women invented calculators and audiobooks. (laughs) Please uh, do not quote me on that. This was an alternative fact, uh, also known as a lie. Uh, but uh, back to the discourse on women's rights. Uh, that uh, was start, starting to pop up in intellectual circles in Egypt. The emphasis on value of education uh, was uh, picked up by Islamic modernist Sheikh Mohammed Abdul argued that keeping women back was neglectful of the true spirit of Islam. Upper class women themselves started discussing how social convention and uh, not Islam, I'm just going to repeat it one more time for those in the back, (laughs) Um, how social convention held them back. This was not a public discourse. Um, As we discussed, upper-class ladies uh, did not enjoy much of a public life, but they started talking among themselves. It would be actually middle-class women that would make their voices publicly heard through journals published as early as 1829, and their writings were directed at other women. A lot of these writers were uh, products of previously introduced uh, public schools, actually, and in 1894, a la- young lawyer, Marcus <laughs> Fahmi Parented a book called The Women in the East, in which he criticized the backwardness of Muslim and Christian Coptic organizations, arguing that when women enjoyed more rights in ancient Egypt and early Islam, their civilization flourished. There was a few more examples of this type of literature being circulated, and some was read by women in harems, including Huda herself. But again, the circulation of this literature was limited. So Huda was not a stranger to feminist discourse, and she was conscious of unfair limitations placed on her gender. So during the separation from her husband, uh, she uh, did experience limited freedoms that uh, furthered her outlook. She was under the guardianship of her brother Umar, whom she was really fond of, often referring to him as her other half in her memoirs. Umar arranged an outing on the Nile, where Huda met Eugenie Lebrun. Uh, Eugenie uh, would become an important figure in Huda's life. Uh, She was an older woman. And uh, she held the first uh, salon uh, for women in Egypt, a place where uh, they could gather and engage in intellectual discourse. As I mentioned, a feminist discourse existed before Eugenie, but in her, Huda found a mentor. Uh, Lebrun dis- Despite being a French woman, distanced herself from the exoticized uh, orientalist European discourse. Just like Huda, she argued against a full veiling, but concluded uh, patriarchal practices in Egypt were rooted in social customs and not Islam, which she considered to be freeing for women actually. And uh, later, Sharavi wrote, I quote, I decided to attack the problem of backwardness of Egyptian women demonstrating it arose from the persistence of certain social customs, but not from Islam, as many Europeans believe, unquote. Uh, she gives examples of the practice of gender segregation in that argument, and argues that it was very much connected to social status, not a religion. At the age of 21, Huda did return to her married life, and in five years, she gave birth to two kids, but she did not retire from her feminist uh, pursuits. By all accounts, uh, her husband was uh, generally supportive of that as well. She put on a series of feminist lectures for upper and middle class women. And in 1908, uh, Huda created the first philanthropic society for Egyptian women, giving women a space outside of the harem where they could engage in fundraising and diplomacy. She has also established a school and a dispensary, a.k.a. a clinic for women. So, uh, not the kind of dispensaries we have around these days. (laughs) Don't get excited. Of course, it helped that all this was done under the patronage of uh, the royal family, and she did have a lot of uh, connections because of her upper-class background. Egypt was undergoing a female intellectual awakening – but it was mostly limited to upper class. The institution of the harem was in decline. Nationalist movement was on the rise and female intellectuals could take their ideas publicly, combining feminism with na- nationalism. Women's first public protest took place on May sixteenth, 1919, but it was limited to aristocracy, The demonstrations became more inclusive with time, and these demonstrations were connected to Egypt's nationalist struggle. It should also be said that the casualties of the 1919 revolution came from working-class another aristocracy, and these casualties did include women as well. Following the women's involvement in these protests, Huda... Co-created a -A WAFD Women's Central Committee following the establishment of Egyptian nationalist WAFD Party. This was a liberal party that supported the country's move to a constitutional monarchy and it advocated for Egyptian independence against a British involvement in the country and it did enjoy popular support. Under the umbrella of the party, the Women's uh, Committee uh, marked a huge turning point. It was the first time women could publicly engage in politics. Besides advocating for independence, the committee also started advocating for the average woman. Of course, Huda uh, Sharavi was uh, by no means a representative of an average woman. Um, it was, uh, ironically, her privilege that allowed her to speak about limitations, but it was also that privilege that placed a lot of those limitations on her. But uh, she did attempt to include the average woman in her discourse. Uh, she did mature quite a bit with time, and early Egyptian feminists, not only challenged a patriarchy, but also class divisions as well. There is actually almost anecdotal story where young Huda in her early years, was discussing how to improve the condition of an average woman. And the best she and her friends could come up with was a tennis court so a lady could exercise and uh, chat. Of course, no one showed up, and it was a classic uh, rich lady, uh, let the meatcake cake move. Uh, but as I said, she did show a lot of maturing throughout her life, and uh, she became more conscious of the reality of an average woman's life as time went on. Uh, so Huda became the president of uh, the WAFD uh, Women's uh, Central Committee. Uh, She uh, later criticized the WAFD party for not consulting women after uh, their negotiations with Britain that took place in London in 1920. And she wrote the following, I quote, At this moment, when the future of of Egypt is about to be decided, it is unjust uh, that the WAFD, which stands for the rights of Egypt and struggles for its liberation, should deny half the nation its role in that liberation, unquote. And uh, this prompted the leader of the party uh, to apologize, actually. Huda was at the very center of a rapidly changing world. By the time she reached her 40s, she was rich, she was independent, And she was a widow in control of her own life and finances, more importantly, free of the control of any male relatives. It was during this time that in 1923, when arriving back to Cairo from the International Women's Suffragette Alliance Congress in Rome, geez, that was a handful to say, (laughs) she decided to publicly unveil herself, becoming the first upper-class woman to publicly show her face. Now, uh, this move has been talked about a lot, like a lot, a lot. (laughs) Some see it as a symbolic act as a representation of the shift from harem to public life. As some say, it added to the Western misrepresentation of the Middle East. Some Middle Eastern feminists, such as Leila Ahmed, argue that Western feminism falsely chose the veil as the main symbol of oppression in the Middle Eastern culture, and that move kind of promoted that. And some say it was not symbolic at all, but it was just the right uh, time of her to do so because uh, she knew she was rich and politically connected, and she was a widow, so she could not be reapproached by her husband. So she could leverage uh, that power in case uh, somebody didn't like her actions. Um, Huda herself did not see. hijab as a symbol of oppression. She reserved that opinion for the niqab, actually, which is the full covering of the face. She viewed it as a barrier to public life of women. But using this discourse that the veil is a symbol of oppression is very much heard in the modern day And um, this is not a new narrative, although it is very much present in our modern reality. It uh, was used in Huda's time uh, by colonial powers to highlight Islam's uh, supposed uh, degrading treatment of women as well. So it was a hot-button issue then as uh, much as it is today. I think it's quite ironic uh, that you know places like uh, Quebec, uh, for example, uh, try to ban the hijab under the guise of uh, freedom because they're essentially telling women what to wear. And I can almost guarantee you, mind you, I don't know who was actually involved in that decision-making process, but I can almost guarantee you, It was dudes that did not actually ask women uh, what they want. Uh, So uh, that is, as I said, quite ironic. Uh, But um, uh, yeah, Huda was a widow at this time. Her husband passed away in 1922. She still remained a very public uh, figure. In 1923, she became the first president of the Egyptian Feminist Union. Uh, This was the same year that women were disappointed to learn that according to the electoral law of the nation that uh, they fought for, they could not participate in politics. Uh, More disappointing news followed in 1924 when most women, with an exception of few uh, prominent wives, could not participate in the official inauguration of the WAFD party. Protests followed this news, and the disillusioned Huda resigned from the WAFD Women's Central Committee that same year. She wrote in her memoirs, I quote, Men have singled out women of outstanding merit and put them on a pedestal to avoid recognizing the capabilities of all women, unquote. It was the women who kept the struggle going when WAFD party members were exiled and imprisoned. They kept the mainstream nationalist movement going while engaging in very intricate diplomacy with the British occupiers. So Egyptian women very much had a lot to do with Egyptian modern independence. Huda wrote further, I quote, Neither illness, grief, nor fear of the censure can prevent me from shouldering my duty with you, you many other women, in the continuing fight for our national rights. Let it never be said that there was a woman in Egypt who failed for personal reasons to perform her duty to the nation, unquote, all this must have felt uh, like a betrayal uh, to her and to women that were at the center of uh, the national struggles and they that were a key to Egyptian independence. Another disagreement uh, that caused the fallout with the uh, WAFD party was who does believe that Sudan should stay a part of Egypt while the government handed it over, Uh, for the British to colonize. Um, Of course, Huda also failed to recognize uh, that Sudan had its own struggle for independence and uh, they really did not uh, want neither option. So disheartened but not defeated, Huda never stopped fighting for women's rights. She remained active in the Egyptian Feminist Union and in 1925, she established the Club of Women's Union, this was an organization for upper class women to help working class women, and uh, she was involved in a lot of uh, charities. So, besides publishing journals, uh, this club provided healthcare, childcare facilities, and workshops uh, for working class. There was um, a dichotomy in who, did, who does writing, the way she saw uh, class divisions. On one hand, she was a passionate advocate for general rights for all women. And on the other hand, she believed that power and decision-making should be in the hands of um, upper class. Uh, So, of course, uh, she she had her limitations, what I'm trying to say, uh, when it came to the way uh, she viewed uh, class divisions. Huda continued to lobby for better conditions for working women, broader access to education, and legal acceptance of women in the public life. And as she did have some success in her lobbying, she also engaged in a broader international feminist discourse and served as a vice president of the International Alliance of Women and the president of Arab Feminist Union, established in 1944. As a part of the global discourse, Huda helped to confront a bias that somehow women from the Middle East are backwards, and feminists from that region did face that attitude from their Western counterparts. And these feminist activists had to carefully balance their ideas in front of their countrymen, Uh, because they could easily be criticized as a Western colonial ideology, Uh, so they did have uh, that added uh, pressure on them that uh, their Western counterparts really did not experience. It is partially why uh, Huda's feminism was so tightly wrapped up in the nationalist movement, so it could not be uh, criticized as uh, carrying uh, colonialist ideas. Uh, Closer to the end of her life, uh, Huda Shairavi recognized as she became a symbol uh, rather than a person in the eyes of her fellow citizens. And she did not hesitate to use that to her advantage uh, to further her own uh, nationalist and uh, feminist uh, beliefs. Often publishing uh, letters in newspapers uh, that would prompt uh, political action uh, from whoever she was addressing. She continued her tireless activism until her death on the 12th of December 1947 at uh, the age of... And uh, let me do some uh, quick math on that because I actually did not... Write it down. So, born in 1879 and 1947. I don't know, my head might explode for math, so excuse me, I'm just uh, a woman. <laughs> Clearly, I cannot count. But uh, she passed away at the age of 68, which is uh, fairly young, I would say, at least for modern standards. Of course, uh, she left behind uh, a tremendous legacy and a very interesting memoir uh, to read through. I do recommend. Unfortunately, it was not uh, finished due to her death. And of course, memoirs are not the best historic sources, but it's a great way uh, to glimpse into her world still. I I definitely, because of the time constraint, uh, because I really did not have much spare time, I kind of glanced uh, through it. Uh, But I uh, do uh, think I will go back and read it more uh, thoroughly when I have the time. I haven't been doing much reading, to be honest. Uh, Usually, I like to sit down with the book. But for some reason, lately, I've been feeling like uh, binging some TV. And I've been watching uh, Marriage or Mortgage on Netflix. Of course, every single time, I would choose Mortgage. I guess I'm not a romantic person, I'm fairly practical in my life approach, but I do like to judge the ones that go with marriage because I feel like it's not worth to have a party and not have better living conditions. But again, that's just me. I'm not saying that those people made some kind of mistake for themselves. I do judge a little, as I said, but <laughs> also that's too bad that, uh, you know what, they uh, the couples that went with marriage often had to kind of downsize from the fantasy they fell for because uh, of COVID as well. So, uh, yeah, that's something I was uh, binging. And, of course, it's a lighthearted show, so uh, that's nice. And I kind of got inspired. There was one couple uh, that were wheeling around their cat in a pet stroller, And I was like, well, my baby also deserves that kind of life. So (laughs) anyways, for my next episode, I will do, I think, a two-part series. I will break it down in either two or three parts. And it will be on Thomas Jefferson's daughters. I got the well-reviewed, talked about a book on the subject and... And it is absolutely mind-boggling to me uh, the fact that uh, some of his children uh, had to grow up in slavery. And the book does, well, because it's also a women's history podcast, we will talk about his daughters in particular, but uh, one of of them uh, who uh, was black, unfortunately, had a very different life from her white sisters. And as I said, It takes me back. It is absolutely mind-blowing that someone would be willing uh, to see their children uh, grow up this way. Uh, So we'll talk about that uh, more, of course, uh, in the next episode. And uh, for now, I wish everyone... Um, you know happy easter happy passover if you uh, celebrate if uh, not just have a nice long weekend if uh, you do have a long weekend in whatever country you're listening in so um, yeah enjoy i will definitely be going for a stroll unfortunately without the cast stroller for now uh, but hopefully amazon will uh, hurry up and deliver (laughs) Uh, bye everyone Bye.